This is New Classical Tracks from listener-supported American Public Media. If you're enjoying this podcast, the best thing that you can do for this show is to tell somebody else about it. Help spread the word. And take a moment to rate and review us on your podcasting app. Awadajan Pratt is a phenomenal pianist, a conductor, and he told me recently, on occasion, he still pulls out his violin and performs. He shares the stage in a variety of settings, and most recently, on his new recording, he shares the stage and the studio with the ensemble A Far Cry and Roomful of Teeth. And what they're doing is performing six new works each of which was written especially for this new recording, which is called Still Point. Awadajan Pratt tells you more about this recording and what inspired it this week on New Classical Tracks from American Public Media. I'm Julia Macher. I'm talking with Awadajan Pratt about a new recording he's just released. And before we get underway about the recording, let me ask you where you are now. I know that you're from Pittsburgh originally. I'm wondering where home is for you now. Um, At the moment, I'm in Cincinnati. Um, I split my time uh, now between Cincinnati and San Francisco. Uh, as I just took a position there, started this fall on the uh, faculty of the San Francisco Conservatory. Well, let me ask you, since you have this new professorship at the San Francisco Conservatory, what opportunity does that offer for you? Well, I think that school uh, has been on the front end of um, trying to figure out what the 21st century music student needs. Uh, in terms of facilities, in terms of curriculum. Um, And that's a lot of what attracted me to the school. And over the years, a lot of students who came to me from San Francisco, they were always very, very, very fine pianists and musicians. And it was just a nice uh, chance to um, be at this school that's really one of the rising stars in the music industry as a whole, especially because of their engagements with artist managements and with record company and um, uh, kind of the only place it's like kind of vertically integrated in terms of the field of classical music. Now, what does that mean, vertically integrated? Um, Well, all of the kind of constituent elements of, of the music industry as it stands now are represented within the institutions. So you have the conservatory, they own Opus 3 management company. They own Askinus Holtz, which is the European management company. And then Pentatone Records, uh, which is a, a very fine recording company. So for me, looking at it as a professor and, and having students that, that you know might potentially be of that caliber uh, to either have recording opportunities or be represented by uh, either of those management companies is a really interesting prospect. And I know that Opus 3 is already engaging with, you know, having um, their artists uh, teach classes, uh, mentorship opportunities. Uh, There's an internship going on between the two institutions now and um, already engaging some of the young artists to play. So that's something that really no other institution has. Um, 
in addition, they have, you know, the new building has all these um, rooms set up for students to record in immediately that can be, you know, live streamed or uploaded immediately to a website. There are things that, you know, like like 12 of those kinds of rooms uh, with the, you know, state-of-the-art technology. And there's not anywhere else that has those kinds of opportunities for students. I'm thinking back to when... I first started featuring you on the radio, your early recordings, and I remember we would always tell people that you were that triple threat that you had earned degrees in piano, violin, and conducting. Are you still also playing violin once in a while, or is that gone by the wayside? My joke with the violin is that I play when people are paying over $100 a seat, which is to stay for benefit-type concerts. So... I practice every now and then, especially when, you know, something's coming up, but I try and keep my fingers in violin shape, you know, modest, minimal violin shape uh, in between. I was also um, looking at some of the things you've done over the years. You know, you've made appearances on the Today Show, Good Morning America. You've played at the White House. And the one that I find most intriguing is that you were on Sesame Street. Mm -hmm. What was that experience like for you, being on Sesame Street? You know, I watched Sesame Street as a kid, and, um, you know, I hadn't, obviously, well, I, I say obviously, I hadn't uh, in many years before, you know, before being on the show, but what was funny about being on the show was that I had friends, you know, I was in my late 20s, early 30s, and I had friends that were in that same age group without kids who said they saw me on the show. I'm like, what were you doing watching Sesame Street? <laughs> but it was, it's the only thing, you know... I'm talking to a non-musician or at a certain point in time, they're like, oh, you've done these things, Carnegie Hall, blah, 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 great. The only thing that they're like, oh, wow, you must be something because you were on Sesame Street. It was fun. I did a skit with Big Bird about um, sharing the piano. He was pecking away at the piano, and um, and I entered the room, and he said, do you play the piano? And I said, sure, I do. And uh, he said, well, why don't you play a little something? You know? And then the lesson was about sharing or turn giving. So when it was his turn to play again, and he gave me his turn. So it was really fun. Oh, I love that. Well, I'm looking at um, your artist bio that goes along with your new recording, which is called Still Point, and it refers to you as a pianist, a pedagogue, a conductor, and curator of artistic moments. Mm. And I love that because it really does describe, in particular, this new recording. And it's a project that took a lot of careful thought for you, five years, in fact. Is that right? I guess that sounds about right, yeah. Can you share that process? I mean, how did the idea is for this recording evolve for you? I think for a while prior to that, I had been thinking about engaging more with living composers. It was something I had done while I was a student, particularly uh, conducting new works. Uh, but it was, these were kind of sporadic and intermittent, you know, engagements. And I thought that I'd been thinking about just in what manner I might engage more with, with living composers. And my friend, uh, Mark Rabideau, who was at the time at DePaul University, they had a curriculum 21CM, like 21st century musician. And he invited me to come judge a, a chamber music competition they had. And one of the other judges uh, was Judd Greenstein, uh, who was the founder, co-founder of New Amsterdam Records and the composer. And he and I spent some time talking and, and I had a night uh, that, you know, went from sort of fancy steaks and cocktails. Six hours later, it was beer and hot dogs. And there, and we were just talking about, 
you know, I was fascinated with what I had heard that day and what I'd seen with young uh, musicians, you know, conservatory age, post-conservatory, um, engaging with a wide manner of, of new music. So whether it was sort of their version of pop, rock, indie, classical things, or, um, you know, living composers that I didn't know of. And I was interested particularly in the variety of, of language of the living composers, which I just not been tapped into at all. And so we had this great conversation. And then uh, Mark, you know, was a longtime friend of mine. And the three of us decided to get together and think about what a recording project might look like. We went up to uh, Judd Hassett Farm in Western Massachusetts. Spent a couple days there listening to mostly New Amsterdam uh, composers. But then I was like, you know, I love this music. Of, I'd conducted the music of Bateris Bosque. So I was like, you know, I love this music and just wanted to put that into, you know, everyone's ears. And then the big issue, you know, Mark had suggested collaborating with, with A Roomful of Teeth. I, as a violinist, was very much interested in, in having something done with string orchestra because there, there's repertoire for piano string orchestra, but not as much as there, you know, I was, I was really looking forward to having more of the, that, you know, that kind of pairing. And so now we're talking about piano, string orchestra, and a vocal ensemble. And then with these, you know, who knows how many composers at that time, and then what's the unifying force, you know? And so I came back from that meeting, and I was thinking two things. I was like, one, um, you know, this is a unique opportunity, and there has to, we have to have African-American composers. There has to be, um, that voice needs to be part of this conversation. And the other thing was in terms of the unifying element was, you know, I love these, the four quartets of T.S. Eliot. And I've, I've always had this, from the time I was a kid, I was interested in language and, and English and writing. And I, that integration of language and, and music was always, you know, important to me, although I'd never done anything with the two together, really. So I thought, we'll look at the four quartets and see if the composers can take inspiration from some of these lines as the unifying element. I want to talk a little bit more about the four quartets, the poems by T.S. Eliot. Were all of those poems used, or were you focusing in on one of your favorites? Um, there was, you know, on the side, a conversation with Faber and Faber about the rights and whether we could, um, like, Rufo Teeth vocalizes, but there was a question, can we, can we have these words spoken, or sung, rather? And they said, no, they can't be sung, they could only be spoken. And so there was a big back and forth about that, but the lines um, that I chose, the five lines, and it seemed to be, it's complicated, but they're lines that I love and, and they seem to be the right ones. At the still point of the turning world, neither flesh nor fleshless, neither from nor towards, at the still point, there the dance is, but neither arrest nor movement. And do not call it fixity where past and future are gathered, neither movement from nor towards, neither ascent nor decline, except for the point, the still point, 
there would be no dance, and there is only the dance. And so I thought there was so much there, you know, as, as food for inspiration for composers. I'm curious, what about that inspires you? I mean, you read it beautifully, but can you talk to me about how you describe the still point? Well, I mean, I think what's what's great about the um, progression of the, these lines is that you're led to this, um, well, he says immediately, the still point, there the dance is. And then he describes this, quality of stasis, right, where where um, things are not stopped but not moving. How are past and future gathered, you know, as he says in the opening time present and time past, or present and time's future, that's the opening lines. Um, but, you know, past and future are gathered in one place. There's no movement either from or towards. There's nothing going up or down. You just have this still point. He's leading you there. And they say, without that, there will be no dance, and there is only the dance. So the, the, the focus moves from the still point, ultimately, to the dance. I think that uh, however one defines dance, right, it can be fast or slow, but the like, for instance, Taishan Sori's piece. And Vosk's piece. So thinking of the middle part of Jesse's piece. Those slow movements, which, which are still and have this sense of rhythm, their own tempo making it a, a dance that is physically probably impossible to dance to at that tempo in a way. Although I'm open to a challenge from a choreographer to say, yes, of course you can dance at that tempo, but um, it's sort of more of a, a, a philosophical, psychological, a dance that's in, in one's mind in a way at that point. But then it was open also to be you know, an exceptionally vibrant, you know, celebratory dance as well. There's, you know, which can also, uh, probably you get to a certain speed or something, which is like what we experience on Earth, right? where it seems still and we're moving, you know, incredibly fast. 
The piece that opens this recording is by Jesse Montgomery. It's called Rounds. And you've already performed this with some 30 orchestras. And it's a lot of visibility for such a new piece. Why is this piece having that kind of impact where you're having that opportunity to perform it so frequently already? Uh, there were nine co-commissioning orchestras initially. Uh, so that was already, you know, that's a third of those performances. A lot of stars aligned. Right when I texted Jesse about writing the piece for a piece, she responded kind of immediately, enthusiastically. And then as we started moving you know, towards contract and stuff, she said, um, please contact. She just found it. She just signed with a manager. I thought, oh my God, this just got you know more expensive, <laughs> and, but it also meant that her star was already rising, right? And so then, you know, we, we had the contract on, and then a couple of things happened. So during the pandemic, when orchestras were starting to figure out how to play, one of the first things that came back because people were concerned about winds and the air and and and, and that that the string playing was was. Um, thought it was like the first thing to come back. And so orchestras were looking for music for strings, and Jesse wrote, had written a fair bit of music already for strings. It was very popular, people liked it. So, oh, what was the piece called Starburst? Starburst, and there's another one that were played a lot during the early part of the pandemic. And then there was, she became the composer in residence for Chicago Symphony. And then... There was also, during all of this, the increased, after George Floyd was killed, awareness among artistic institutions about inclusion, diversity. So all of those things kind of operated together. You had a piece written for string orchestra with one of the more, I think last year, Jesse was like performed the, like the most performances of her music except for Beethoven. Like Beethoven was one and she was two in terms of uh, the amount of performances of music. So, you know, her music is really great, operates on many different levels and uh, is accessible. So the timing, again, just works, you know, incredibly well for, for these multiple, uh, for multiple sets of performances. There's also a bit of a visual element to this piece where the cadenza is concerned. Can you talk about that a little bit, please? Yeah, so the cadenza, when I got the score, there was a, a measure marked cadenza with no material. And so I said, what's up here? And she's like, I'm working on it. And because I have had for a while a sort of practice in improvisation and have had my own cadenzas for uh, first concerto and a couple of other concertos, um, and I improvise in between pieces and some of our recital programs, I had already started playing around with some ideas from Jesse's piece, and I sent her about a minute of ideas, uh, which she liked. And she was like, okay, I'll transcribe these and start playing around with this, that, and the other. And then, you know, a day or two later, I sent another minute. And she said, you know what, why don't you... She's like, this is great. And she said, you can just... You can do this. You can write the cadenza. You can... Um, take it over. And I was a little, a little daunting for the composer of this piece to, to tell you that, because I'm not a composer, but but I accepted that, um, especially as the first performance was getting closer and closer. 
And so I started to play and, 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 and you know, come up with the trajectory of the cadenza. And I just thought that, that it could represent some other things that, that are part of extended piano techniques. Um, and so I started playing around with what, what happens inside of the piano and had a few different iterations of, of sort of playing inside the piano in the middle of the cadenza. But yeah, I live, so you talk about the, the visual element, I stand up in the middle of the cadenza to, to uh, pluck uh, on the inside of the piano. The next piece is called Code by Paola Prestini, and this one is so ethereal. Can you talk about what is the code? Because it actually gets into a little bit of history with the poet and a love letter that he wrote to his school teacher. Um, so, in looks like in January of 2020, which was shortly after, um, or within the time period where Paola was working on the piece, at the start of the beginning, the, there was a revelation of letters between um, P.S. Eliot and this woman named Emily Hale, who was in the U.S., and there were these love letters that spanned decades. He had sort of disavowed his the depth of his emotions to her and had burned her letters to him. Uh, she kept his letters and gave them to the Princeton Library to be, to be released 50 years after the last of them died, which was, which, uh, so 50 years later after she died, these letters are released and it reveals the depth of this love story. And Paula approached the piece, uh, from this direction as a love story and, and the code, which I don't have the final score yet, but in invisible ink is a name of an imaginary lover, imaginary loved one. I was sort of trying to work through the piece of the beginning, fixated on um, pitch sets and whether the name was revealed in pitch sets. And she told me I was not going to find the answer that way. So, um, but anyway, so she uh, approached the piece with, with the feeling of, of love. And I guess you could say between avowal and denial. And there's a tension um, for the piece, an arc in the piece that, that that I think represents the, that narrative arc of their their relationship. Which is just kind of genius. What also works is that Burge Norton, which is the opening quartet, is a place that they had been together. And so um, it ties in beautifully with those, those lines that I chose having to having come from Bert Norton. Mm -hmm. 
Hmm. Time past, time future is the piece that Elvin Singleton wrote for you. He's in his 80s, an American composer who always hoped that one day he would hear you play his music. What was that experience like for both of you when you were playing his music? It was it was great. You know, Alvin, as I had met him you know, decades before, and um, he's such a lovely personality, but he was so generous. He just he liked what we were doing, the sound of it's demanding uh, because of the dynamic range of, you know, four or five Ps uh, to the extreme of four or five fortes. <laughs> the shift that the, the music that's piano that quality of piano is also very 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 slow moving in terms of when chords change that's so representing that stillness also and then the vibrant the faster section you know represents a different kind of dance But it's challenging because of the, the stillness in that the slower music. But he, you know, loved uh, he loved it, which was really nice. It's always great when a composer's smiling. You finish, and they're smiling. You're like, okay, that's pretty good. <laughs> oh, that is a good feeling. The piece that Pateris Vosks wrote for you is a solo piano work titled Castillo Interior. And this one focuses on the past and future gathered. Can you explain what that means and how we hear that in the music? Well, that I, I can't answer to. Uh, it's, um, he wrote a piece for violin and cello called Castillo Interior as well. And that's the piece that he transcribed for me with changes. And the title of the piece uh, references uh, St. Teresa of Avila, who had these seven castles or houses on the pathway to becoming, um, how would one describe, understanding God. So he's, he's sort of reflecting that, and it alternates between slow, I used the word searing with this music before, but this is slow, painful, uh, and maybe it's the, the, the pain is maybe what's in past tense, I can maybe say, um, in terms of where past and future are gathered. And maybe there's future in the, at the end, and we have the same type of music that goes from minor into, into major. Um, but it alternates with a slow section and, and then with a very kind of minimalistic, faster section. I think it was fascinating for me, again, where, you know, I say slow and fast, and like Jesse Season has slow and fast, and Alvin's piece has slow and fast, but they're all so different, right? Every, the energy, the specific energy of each of the slows is completely different. The specific energy of all of the fast sections is completely different. And that's, I find that, I mean, it's not surprising, but it is fascinating given the same five lines of source material. But Voss's piece is, is he and I had this conversation or exchange where I'm thinking of this this ascent of this uh, Saint Teresa of Avila and this nun and and that there's, there's an ascetic 
quality that that the string players couldn't do, right? Because the piano is working a decaying instrument, you play a note and it just dies. And so I was trying for this absolutely kind of aspirational, devotional kind of tone. And he wanted something more expressive. And I had two thoughts. I'm like, okay, so this is more of an ecstatic kind of feeling in this slower music. And of course, he wrote it for violin and cello, meaning he expected them to play as they would naturally, right? Which was with vibrato and just, you know, they're naturally going to be that way and he wanted the piano to be more that way uh so it's interesting for me and and of course you have the i guess within religion that that those again those opposites of ascetic and ecstatic and maybe they're not exactly opposites but it's sort of two opposing energies kind of working together at once uh and so the piece um is is really compelling people people absolutely love it and there's a this word hypnotic was, has been used in terms of Jesse's piece and also uh, with Bosque's piece. Do you know why Taishan Sori's piece is untitled? I do not. I never asked him. That's so interesting, an untitled composition for piano and eight voices. What's interesting about this, about Taishan's piece, or Taishan, I guess, is, is it's mixed, mixed meter. It's, uh, again, this slow, the entire piece, you know, it's a quarter note equals 60. Uh, so you feel it by the second. Um, it's muted in the piano with a unicorda pedal, the soft pedal down, but with lots of the sustaining pedal. So capturing the um, the overtones of the singers are captured in the sound of the piano with the pedal down, which is a fascinating effect. It's a sound world unlike anything else on the album uh, and slowly transports you to another place. And the title track is The Last Piece by Judd Greenstein. It is kind of another mini piano concerto and ends very intriguingly in the final moment you are all alone yeah i actually extended that there was supposed to be one measure alone and i asked for the strings to cut out just a little bit earlier so that that sort of last bit of the motive sounds with the piano alone uh judd's a pianist his piano is his first instrument he wrote it the piano kind of the most pianistic in a way um again fully integrative of the forces of room full of teeth and 
the string orchestra, which in the recording is a far cry, who were phenomenal to work with. It just has a great kind of narrative arc as well, and has, has probably the more virtuos virtuosic pianistic moments in the piece, uh, which just come, you know, comes to this great roaring conclusion of all the forces of the piano just going crazy all over the place. dissolves into the little last statement of this motive in the piano. A really terrific piece, and I think a great counterpoint to Jesse's piece at the beginning and it's still point at the end. It's a new recording called Still Point. Awadajan Pratt is the pianist, and he's joined by a far cry and a room full of teeth on this new recording. Thanks to Valerie Kaler, she's our producer for new classical tracks from American Public Media. I'm Julia Macher.